Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't? At the Grand Budapest, sir. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustav H. <laughs> Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. Hey! Stop! Hey, everybody. Welcome to You Have to Watch This Podcast. I'm Alan. I'm Ryan. And I'm Devin. And today, I forget who's having me watch this. Is it you, Devin? It's me. Okay. Uh, today, I... Uh, I popped my Wes Anderson cherry. Yes. And I finally watched a Wes Anderson movie. So, um, Devin, let's have you introduced Grand Budapest Hotel. Great. So today we are watching uh, the 2014 Wes Anderson movie, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, this movie, cast-wise, is absolutely stacked. I mean, you have Ralph Fiennes in the lead role as M. Gustav, uh, and then you have... Um, Oh, what is it? The guy that plays Flash Thompson. I can't think of his name right now. But you have the guy that plays Flash Thompson in the Spider-Man movie as uh, the main, one of the main people. Um, I mean, there's also Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum. Get Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Bill Murray shows up. Jude Law shows up. Edward Norton shows up. Like this cast is. I mean, Tilda Swinton's in it for a while. Like this cast is like my dream cast. If you like, ask me to put a movie together. Now. As a quick introduction to my viewing of this movie, which I think Ryan is going to probably take personal offense to, uh, I saw this movie first on an airplane, which I think I end up seeing a lot of really big grand movies by accident on airplanes. Um, I was probably like playing Pokemon or doing something that wasn't like conducive to me paying a lot of attention to this movie, and it just kind of had it on in the background, and eventually it just kept taking over my attention. Uh, I kept being drawn in by the visuals, by just the style and the cadence of of how everyone was talking, and the pacing of the movie eventually made me drop whatever I was doing and need to pay attention to this movie. Um, I then watched it a second time for the podcast and realized not only how little I remembered about the movie, but how little I really understand this movie. So I want to kind of kick it over to you guys and, and hear about what you guys think. So, Ryan, uh, is this your first time watching Grand Budapest Hotel? What do you think? Um, this is my third or fourth time watching okay. Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I My like experience with this film was listening to Wes Anderson give an interview on NPR when it first aired in theaters, and it made me super interested in it. Um, just the things he was talking about, the setup for like the, the era, the that it's set in the world that they built to film it in. Um, and I really found him very interesting. And so I came home, uh, I was, I was driving home from work. And when I got home after hearing the interview, I talked to my wife about it and we waited for it to come out, uh, for rent to, to watch it. And it, it, it was a new experience because of his type of, you know, like the majority of, of his movies are kind of like this and he has a definite, his own style. Um, 
And I've wanted to watch other stuff like Moonrise Kingdom and the Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I've never gotten around to actually see them yet, which but which I'm going to soon since I watched since I just watched this one and re-listened to that interview again. But yeah, no, I've I I I I Mm -hmm. thoroughly enjoy this movie. That's awesome. And then so, Alan, this was your first time. Not only yes. watching Grand Budapest Hotel, but your first Wes Anderson movie. What did you think? It's my first Wes Anderson movie that I can remember. Um, I feel like I've seen bits and pieces of other ones, but not like the whole way through. Like I've never just sat down and watched a Wes Anderson movie in my adult life. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed this. I've been recommended his films before. Um, I just haven't gotten around to watching anything yet. I don't know why. It's just like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'll get to that eventually. And this is one of the first ones that I saw. I was like, oh, that looks really good. That's got a great cast. I really want to see that. And I, it took the podcast for me to just sit down and actually watch it. What was really nice was like things are starting to get back, back to normal enough where I could just walk into the library and, and take this out. Oh, like wow. I didn't have to rent it. Like I'm b- back to the point where I can not have to pay for movies that we're watching for the show. I can just go to the library and get it. Um, so that was a nice taste of how things were like a year ago. Um, but no, I really enjoyed it. Um, there's some th- things I really want to talk about from a filmmaking standpoint that we'll get to eventually. Um, but no, I really enjoyed the style, the sense of humor, uh, the cast. I liked it. That's awesome. So, I guess I'll kind of start at the beginning because I don't. There's so much to talk about with this movie that I want to make sure that I hit all of the parts that I think are coolest, and then I want you know I'm hoping you guys can fill in some stuff. One of the things that struck me immediately about this movie is the framing of the movie. So the movie is a woman on a bench in a graveyard reading a book written by a man who's reminiscing about a conversation that he had in a hotel with somebody. So the movie is like three people removed from the story. Like you're not watching it play out. You're watching somebody tell somebody who remembered writing it down at some point and somebody's reading it. Do you, what did you guys think about that? Did you like that? Like it actually took me until this watching to understand that's really what was going on. I really enjoyed that because I, I really enjoyed the, we're going to change the aspect ratio for each level of the story that we're getting into. Um, I've never had a DVD come up and like have a menu pop up and tell me set your screen to 16 by nine. Like I was like, Oh, that's different. Like why would my screen be set to anything else but that? Um, (laughs) But then it, it really like just watching it, on a big enough screen where you can appreciate the different aspect ratios. Cause some of them are subtle, but then other ones are like really tight. Like the, the majority of the story is in, um, like a square format. Yeah. So you, they're not even using most of the screen. Um, but no, I really enjoyed how like the deeper you went, the smaller the aspect ratio got. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for me, I've always loved that whole idea because you technically have three different stories going 
and you have three p you have three different people's experiences with the same story. You've got the people who are actually experiencing that story. And then you've got the story from a second-hand account, and then you have the story from a third-hand account, which to me goes into the feel of this film uh, when they're going through the first-hand account, because it's almost dreamy. Like, it's surreal. It's more surreal. Like, when they're going over what's going on in the moment between... um, Oh, what's the name? The the guy who runs the hotel. What's the what's what's his title again? I forget the the, the terminology. What is his name? He's not. He's the concierge, right? The, the concierge there. And Gustav. There. Yeah. Um, it, you've got his story and how mm-hmm. it's real, like surreal, and then it's a little bit less surreal when they're actually showing Zero explaining the story, and then it's almost factual realism at the very beginning and at the very end. And I really like that because the way I take this is that you're seeing the movie through the reader's imagination. And I completely agree. And I think the thing that it does that I really love is it, um, it makes kind of the dream like Wes Anderson-ness of it all makes sense in Mm -hmm. context. Yeah. It actually puts it in like you're, you're, reliving this through somebody whose only you know couple years of happiness was this time period in his life so everything's going to have that extra saturation everything's going to be bright colors people are going to talk extraordinarily things are going to be framed in a cool way the miniatures that don't look photorealistic are going to make sense and are going to fit that style and it looks like it was a style done on purpose not a style for the sake of style which I love. I love when it like feeds into a context. Yeah. And, and that goes into the girl reading the book in the graveyard. It's mm-hmm. almost like she's going there to pay tribute to the guy because obviously there's keys hanging on his like tombstone pretty yeah. much. And it's almost like, okay, well she's reading the book. So visually this is what she has playing in her head. Yeah. And, and th- yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like this movie. Well, and going back to the aspect ratio that Alan had mentioned, I actually didn't notice the aspect ratio changing. I just noticed some scenes are smaller than other scenes, and that was as deep as I had gotten into it. Uh, I found out this movie makes the only aspect ratio joke I think I've ever heard in a movie. Uh, Whenever you are um, looking at the author retelling his story, so the older version of the author, uh, this format is 1 by 85, I think, something like that, if that's an aspect ratio. Um, so yes, that's, that's what it is there. Yeah. It's one by 85. And that part of the story takes place in 1985. So the aspect ratio matches the year. Dang it. Wes Anderson. I love it. Yeah. That's also the, uh, standard, uh, aspect ratio that you see in most films today. Oh, is it? Yeah. Um, and then it switches to 2.35 by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is still used today occasionally, but was fashionable in the 1960s. And then the last one is the Academy ratio, which is 1.37 by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the square. Oh, right. More of a square. Kind of. Yeah. Um, so did you not notice the aspect ratio changes because you were watching this on an airplane? Well, I, mean, I watched it on an airplane the first time and then I watched it. I mean, in my living room this time, like on a a TV that I own, like not my phone or anything like that. And like, I think I didn't change the aspect ratio on the plane because they only have such a small screen to work with anyway. And if they were to cut the sides off and make it a little square, I think it'd be so obnoxious to watch. But like 
I honestly I didn't notice the aspect ratio changing here because I feel like he packs every scene with so much detail and there's so much going on that my brain's just like I'm gonna file that for later. I'm gonna focus on these things. I noticed it. I would. I don't know how much I would have noticed it if it wasn't for the DVD telling me to set my TV correctly. Oh, I mean that makes sense. Um, but it, it kept happening throughout, and I was I was noticing it because even the beginning scenes didn't take up my full screen. Like there was still a border on the edge. Yeah. Um. So I noticed that. Like, if there's any real estate on my screen not being used, I I take notice to that. Yeah. At least I try to. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I um I noticed it first when uh they cut to the prison scenes when they're uh-huh. doing their breakout and like I'm watching and all of the sudden it was like I blinked and I realized that 30% of my TV screen was black. <laughs> it was one of those things where it had probably been like that for that scene for like for for the length of it. And then just right in the middle of that whole sequence, I blinked and I realized that it, it had cut. And then that's when I paid more attention to when they were going back and forth between, you know, the first hand account to the second hand account where the, the screen was moving pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I think that's, I don't know. It's one of those things that just adds another layer onto this movie that already has so many layers going on that I just can appreciate it, or I appreciate it a lot. So let's take a step back and not talk about anything super specific, but what did you guys think about, because we can get into nitty-gritty, but what did you guys think about the overall plot of everything? Because I realized on my second viewing, they resolve everyone's plot in the first four minutes of this movie. And if it's your first time watching, you don't really get it. Like, you don't really understand that's what you're watching. But, like... Everything is just leading back to the first four minutes that you see. So, like, I mean, did you guys like that? Did you like the overall plot of it? What did you think? I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I think I know what you mean by it all leads back to the first four minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to hear you go into detail on that. Okay. Just so I know. I'm kind of with Alan on this one. Cause <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about, like, the fact that they just... You, you know how it ends at the beginning. Well, exactly. I mean, so in, I mean, everybody's plot that they plot line that they bring up and that becomes relevant in, in the first four minutes of this within the first four minutes gets resolved. So boy with Apple is hanging in the lobby and you see boy with Apple right away before yeah. they even bring up the fact that they don't know who it's going to go to or even what it is. Boy with Apple's hanging in the lobby already. They talk about how the writer had died early. Then they, a second later, they show that his son likes to play with a toy gun around the house and shoot at him, or a real gun around the house and shoot at him with it. So, I mean, you understand how the writer dies. You understand that the plot line with Boy With Apple is going to be resolved and it's going to end up in the hotel. Like, all of that just shows that it works out and that the hotel is going to be in disrepair and isn't going to be this great institution. It's going to be uh, owned eventually by Zero. All of that's going to happen, and then you're just watching all of that play out. And I really liked that. Like, I thought that was interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's it's very good foreshadowing, because it tells you how the story ends, but it doesn't tell you how you get there. Like, that's yeah. the that's the gist of this movie, is just getting you to that point. Mm-hmm. 
Which I find it funny that you like that because this is kind of a very artistic view of the thing that you hate when you have a character going like, this is this is where I'm at in my life. And he's like falling from the sky or being crushed by a car. And then the movie recycles itself. Like this is very much a more artistic way of doing that. So it's different enough. How did I get here? Well, to understand that we got to go back three months. (laughs) Even you doing that, like fake version of that speech made me mad. The the mega mind Sonic, the hedgehog freeze frame opening. Yes. (laughs) And maybe it's just because I, I, I realize this is a thing for me and I want to know if you guys have this too. I am really drawn in by well-written dialogue in movies. Like for example, the opening scene of, uh, social media is one of my favorite scenes in movies where they have that social network, social network, that one. Yeah. Where they have that parallel conversation going on. The two aren't necessarily on the same page, but it's a clever way to get exposition and character development into a natural sounding conversation. And they have this cadence and rhythm and it's very similar to that in this, this movie. And I think that's why I like it so much. See, to me, it all depends. It all, okay. it, it's, it, it just doesn't have to be written creatively or, you know, fit together. It, it, it's got to be something. I mean, it all goes down to interest to me. Like you could have mm-hmm. something that could, you know, a really great setup and, you know, really smart writing. But if it's something that I honestly don't care about or if they're on a subject that I'm just like, yeah, then it falls flat for me. But that could be for anything for anybody. So, I mean, it could be the same thing. Like, it could be a car movie and both of you guys are like, ah, no, I don't care. Right. Or it could be, like, the best written, I don't know, like, My Little Pony movie in the world. And, like, I'm not, I won't be into it. <laughs> um, so speak- That might change my plans for next week. Ooh, oh, no. <laughs> Speaking of subject matter, Ryan, you had sent me an interview. Yeah. That made me look at this movie in a way that I hadn't on either one of my two watchings. And I want to know what your guys' thoughts on it are because the the interviewer had at, was talking to Wes Anderson and had mentioned about how this is essentially a war movie. And I think I get it. No, like, I, get I get it. <laughs> I, it takes, I mean, it takes place in that time between World War I and World War II. It's in a, a fictional Europe and a fictional country. I don't know if I would call this a war movie. Like, what, what do you guys think about that? Like, would you would you agree with the interviewer? Or I didn't see the interview that you're talking about, yeah. but I can definitely see it. Just the way the the main story is bookend by the war. Mm-hmm. Like you have the train stopped at the beginning, and you have the train stopped at the end, and you have two completely different outcomes because of the war. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it, like Zero is like a refugee from war. Like he, so it's like him trying to start this new life because he, his life was upset by war. Um, and it is like a war between Gustav and the family. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, yeah. I think, I think for me, because there wasn't like a big sprawling epic battle and our main character isn't a soldier. I didn't like write it down or like check it off in my mind. Ah, it's a World War Two movie, like or it's you a don't war think movie. The, uh, you don't think the pistols going off across from the each other on the balcony is a big battle? <laughs> here's 
All right. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll rival that with Saving Private Ryan. Okay. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Okay. So I was waiting to start talking, but I'm just going to start talking now. Do it. So on that one, this is a war movie. Flat out, this is a war movie. Just like how Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie, even though some people may not consider it a horror movie. These films... Uh, okay. To me, it's a war film. It takes place during a fictional world war. Mm-hmm. Pretty much what the interviewer was saying, Alan, the interview was done on Fresh Air on NPR, and it was done like a week before the movie aired. And it's about 30 minutes long. um, And she's just asking a bunch of random questions. And this comes up. And I believe his his answer was, well, the story's backdropped by war, so it Mm -hmm. could be taken as a war movie. Like it was something that 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 I don't think he really meant for it to be seen as, but I think he was okay with the question and that appearance of it as a viewer. And the fact that I can add whatever I want because of how I depict from it, um, they're dealing with the political fallout of a war going on in their country. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a war movie, especially with having the police, which is basically uh, militarized for that time in place. I mean, they're basically running away from a fascist government's police force, which isn't, which is military. So to me, I would take this as a definite war movie. Um, I know Alan, what you said was a joke, but no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So here's my thing. And this is something that I think the movie does so well, and I'm just going to give it a name. I'm going to call it the Fleetwood Mac effect. And the reason I'm calling it the Fleetwood Mac effect is that it took me about 26 years to understand that Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way is a breakup song. I understand that it's a breakup song now. I've grown up. But it's such a happy song. And it's presented so lighthearted that I didn't know it was about a breakup. I was like, yeah, go your own way. Yeah, it's fun. This movie does the same thing. It handles a lot of very serious, very dramatic, very heavy topics and presents them in this incredibly lighthearted and dramatic way to the point where I think if it was a different director trying to tell the same story, it wouldn't look like this or wouldn't have the same effect as this. Um, part of, I think part of where that's coming from is based off the writer and author that this story is based from Mm -hmm. you saw how there was that credit to the writer that this movie was kind of like taken from he was a jewish i forget the country he's from but uh he had to escape um hitler's uprising in the surrounding regions of germany um and his writings depicted a europe that is depicted in this movie um Art, very art based, very cultural, you know, uh, um, a lot about culture and kind of fantastical to a point, kind of, from what I remember. Um, and I feel like that is where the connection between the style of Europe in the 30s in this fictional country um, where where was a West Anderson got the idea for that was from this guy's writings. And what he remembered as Europe, because he uh, he went from uh, the town he fled from to London, to New York, and he committed suicide in Brazil in like 1942. I remember that specifically. But um, he 
always remembered Europe as this like romantic like picture. Interesting. Um, and I feel like that's where that comes from. Well, I mean, I think that's what this movie is. I mean, it's a re- it's it's romantic. Like it is a romanticized retelling of these really arguably horrible events. Yeah. And like I I don't know. I just for some reason that just really draws me into it. And I I think another part of that comes from the fact that he's looking back and telling the story to Jude Law in the hotel. Yeah. So like he's looking back at it on it fondly as this was his friend Mr. Gustav. This was when he had the love of his life. Like this was like as bad as it like he does. Like you don't see anything horrible that happens. Like he talks about his wife and child dying, but you don't see that. Right. Like you see them at their wedding mm-hmm. when when he's talking about that. You don't see Gustav die on the train. Right. Like it's just him looking back fondly through rose colored glasses. Um. And remembering how remembering it how he wants it to be remembered. Yeah, you know, and I I think my favorite instance of that, or my favorite touch of that, and I, um, I, I this gets me every time is uh, I think her name is Agatha, the mm-hmm. the girl that he falls in love with, is her facial mark that is a literal like almost geographically correct version of of Mexico and Central America and Central America and like I mean I it just it it's showing you that you're viewing this from the eyes of an unreliable narrator like I'm assuming she had a little tiny birthmark on her face and that it was somewhat in the shape of Central America but whoever was envisioning it like literally pictured Central America there and I love that and that's where I get in my mind the way that I see this movie mm-hmm. is that you get zero is explaining the story. The author is hearing this and writing this down. And so zero said that she had a birthmark on her face that looked like South and Central America. Mm-hmm. And so when the girl reads this, because she looks like she's either like an older high schoolish student or maybe like a young college student, you know, like maps are in her head and just, you know, like that type of deal. So yeah. when she reads, you know, she had a, you know, a birthmark on the side of her face, the shape of, you know, South and Central America, that she impictions the geographical perfect map of right. it on the side of the face, because that's how, you know, like your imagination would flow. And I also think that it's there's so many layers to it as well because you have him telling the story to the writer in the hotel. You have the writer retelling this in his writing, and then you have her interpreting it. So there's so many filters that it goes through until we see it that right. it's so different from what may have actually been. Right, and I, I I don't know. I think that's one of the cooler things for me. So watching this movie, the one thing that I kept wanting to I mean, one thing that kept going through my mind is I'm like, all right, Alan, you know, does movies and stuff. Uh, what do you think of the filmography or how it was shot? Because cinematography, cinematography is the word I'm looking for there. <laughs> um, I saw a thing online the other day that was filmmakers summarized in one sentence, and the one for Wes Anderson was, "Every frame is a painting. Uh, everything that he shoots." All his films, from what I understand, I've only seen this one, but it definitely 
is uh, seen in this one is symmetrical. Like everything's in the center. Everything is is equal. Like it's very symmetrical. You can slice the frame in half and it's equal on both parts. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, especially with the smaller aspect ratio for most of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, like the, the scene that sticks out to me is the chase sequence down the mountain. Oh yeah. Like when you just kept getting the close ups of, uh, Willem Dafoe on his like skis and then like them on the sled mm. and you just have like this very close up, but they're all dead center in the frame. There's even a moment where, um, where the writer, um, when he's doing his bit, the, uh, Tom Wilkinson is talking to the camera. Like he, he yells at the kid and then he comes back to talk to the camera and like, this doesn't really work for anyone listening, but like he comes back to the, the camera comes back to him and he's like a little bit off frame, but then he adjusts. Yeah. He like moves himself. to get back in frame. Yeah. There's this, like a tiny moment of that. I really enjoyed it. Like part of that's part of the reason why I want to go back and watch a lot more of his stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I really want to see what else he does with the frame. Yeah. I, and that was one of the things that struck me too. And, and also that like none of the scenes see like all of the scenes have this energy where I feel like they just keep moving. Like there are very, very few just still shots in this movie. And I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Everything is set up. So I'm looking at the, the, um, cinematographer and seeing what else they he's he's done a lot of Wes Anderson stuff oh yeah so he did Moonrise Kingdom Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzo uh, Moonrise Kingdom he also did um, Mamma Mia Here We Go Again and the <laughs> Ghostbusters reboot interesting everything was pretty much uh, you know symmetrical in, uh, in Mamma Mia so I think we're good on that one probably <laughs> As long as they frame Pierce Brosnan I, correctly, I don't care. I mean, I think it's more. I think that's more of a Wes Anderson thing because I'm looking at some of these other stuff and like. No, it is. I, he, I he, was works just with, he works joking. with uh, Paul Feig a lot, so he does. He did Ghostbusters. He did Spy. He did Bridesmaids. Oh. So I definitely think that's a Wes Anderson style that oh, they yeah. both have settled on. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't think Get Him to the Greek and Yes Man had the same <laughs> no. style. No, it didn't. Uh, <laughs> so one of the scenes that I would definitely say that is a perfect example of the balancing act on it, especially on the small ratio, mm -hmm. um, was when they had the staff having breakfast or lunch or whatever. Yeah. And as somebody who did a little bit of design school, um, you could split that in half. And it was one of those things where you've got everybody sitting down. It's almost kind of like a 3D effect because the table's so long. And then you have like like the cook or like the waiter or somebody standing up on the right-hand side of the screen. But to balance that off on the blank wall on the left-hand side going up, there's a small row of windows that go across the wall on the very top that is uh -huh. not on this side. That's not on the other side. So the balancing between the blank wall and those windows going across on top balance out the one guy who's standing up on the other side of the screen when nobody else is. So, I mean, this isn't just like planned out f before people are standing. This is planned out for the whole set. Yeah. 
I I just it's that level of attention to detail that I really just appreciate. So then I had a question for Ryan because Ryan, you've seen this three, four times now. Yeah. So me watching it time number two, not on an airplane, full attention, like <laughs> given to the movie. I feel like there's a level of plot going on that's implied but not explicitly said. Um, a good example of it is uh, the dynamic set up by M. Gustav in the jail. So he like very quickly tells you that he beat somebody up in the jail like without like going into it. They don't show it, but he's like, I beat someone up in the jail because you have to prove that you, you know, aren't weak. Yeah. Right. And I feel like there's this other side to this character that zero doesn't see or is choosing to omit from the telling of the story. Do you have kind of any insight on that? Or have you picked up on any other things like that, that you could help me out with? Or is that just like me, like fan in my mind? That might be a little fanficy in your mind. I mean, granted, mm-hmm. it's also from Zero's point of view. He, uh, just like Alan said, he looks on this time with like rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, so there could definitely be stuff about his character that he's not saying that they might hint at. Mm-hmm. But the way that I took that with him saying about how like you've got to prove yourself is that they show Gustav, that character, mm-hmm. as like the perfect example of what a older turn of the century you know fully intelligent full of wisdom gentleman should be Mm -hmm. you know just you know just knowledgeable enough to be prepared for any situation um willing to do whatever he needs to do to get stuff done um which makes him perfect for the job that he has Mm -hmm. and because, I mean, you could definitely say that he's got some really bad qualities because of the lovers he picks and the fact that, like, I mean, yeah, he says that it's his thing and he actually, you know, like likes them. But at the same time, he definitely benefits materialistically from these relationships that he has. So one regard, Zero could be completely overlooking the fact that he manipulates old sick women to get what he wants. And he just sees it as, oh, that that was Gustav's like kink. Right. You, you know what I mean? Thing. Yeah. And um, and because I mean, I'll be, I'll be perfect. I'll be perfect example i mean as a big sports fan i mean mm-hmm. there are athletes that play on the field that in their personal lives <laughs> i would never want to know th- i would never want to know them personally but because of what they can do for their job uh-huh. i appreciate it right so i mean i could definitely see zero going yeah this guy had a lot of good traits and i'm only going to tell you those and the stuff that could be bad i'm going to manipulate that to put it in a good light and I feel like the stuff that could be bad gets shown, but only like the, the tippiest tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Like the, the one scene where he like enters into somebody's room, you get a sense that it's an older lady. It's not Tilda Swinton's character and the camera's already pulling back from him when it happens. And he does it like when the camera's so far back, you don't see his expression. You don't hear the exchange. You just know it's happening and you go, okay, that's what he's doing. Yeah. And and you get that part where was it like he explains the type of women that he likes and then he gets and they and they have to be blonde and they show the uh, the blonde wig on the nightstand and the camera pans yeah. over. 
when you know that th- that's I laughed a little bit, Alan, when you said that the catchphrase for him was that every scene could be a painting. Like that's one painting I don't want. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, um, like, and then I guess you, I got to return your Christmas present. Then. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got was it Jude Law, the one who was playing the young author at that point? Yes. yes. Okay. You've got Jude Law. He he asked the question, you know, why why blonde? And Zero goes, they just were. Because he didn't care to know why he went for that type of women, because there might be an answer there that he just didn't want to know or he doesn't want to admit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. Go ahead, Alan. Sorry. So I wanted to bring up something that you guys hinted, like just brought up and made me think that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that was Tilda Swinton until I looked at the cast list. Oh, really? They, yeah. they did a good makeup job on her. Yeah, they did. And I also didn't realize that Zero was Flash Thompson from Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, it was a younger version of him. But, like, I think the only reason that I knew is because the second he was on screen, Romana goes, oh, he's in Spider-Man. And, like, she's so good at picking that stuff out. Like, I think my first watch of this movie, I didn't catch Bill Murray. Really? Yeah, were, I know that's you were watching it on an hard. airplane. I was you watching it on watch, an airplane. You were watching it on an airplane. Yeah. And he's got a he has a lot of facial hair going on, and I'm not used to Bill with that much facial hair. Yeah. It, it's funny to me that like just looking at this cast, half of this cast has been in Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it um Wes Anderson too? He attracts a lot of these actors, and there's a lot of people in this who are in his other films because he, mm. he, he it's almost like uh, it's almost like an actor troupe. Like he kind of has like his crew, and he just like sends out like the West Anderson bat signal, and all the actors show up at his house. Like I feel <laughs> like that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, Owen Wilson was in this movie for a little bit, right? I'm not just making yeah. that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's in Moonrise Kingdom in Darjeeling. Like yeah. he's main character in both of those, I think. And I feel like he's in Life Aquatic. He as is in well. Life Aquatic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like he's a pretty yeah. big deal. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, for other movies, uh, I feel like how short some of these actors' cameos were would have really felt out of place. But because this movie is so sur- you know, so surreal that it fits. Exactly. You know, like you're not surprised that he shows up for like three scenes and that's it. You're not surprised that, you know, William Defoe is the silent hitman. Like none of this stuff stands out because the movie's surrealistic and it just it all fits. Well, I mean, it even all fits with the the past or the uh, the theme of the young girl reading the book. Right. Yeah. You picture a hitman. She's going to picture somebody evil. Willem Dafoe's got that face. He just fits the bill. Like, yeah, she's filling in actors that she knows in this story. What? Okay, so one of one of one of the things that when it comes to her and like the beginning opening where like she walks into the cemetery, one of and this is just a little like footnote. Um, yeah. One of the things that I really loved is the fact that they planted that and they give you a hint that it's the eighties. They give mm-hmm. you a really strong hint, not her outfit. But there is an 80s European punker 
leaning up against a light post just outside the cemetery. And the first time I saw this, I'm like, this has got to be the 80s. This has got to be the 1980s. What is this? I thought this movie took place in the 30s. That's what the interview said. Why why is there an 80s, you know, like Sex Pistols rocker outside of the cemetery? And then as the movie went, you know, it explained that. But I really liked how he put cultural time, you know, like culturally significant things in frame before it's even said what year or what time of, you know, what time is actually it's taking place. In. And I think he does that with a lot. Like a good example is, I mean, he makes up a fake country. I can't even remember what the fake country's name is for this movie. All I know is that the cigarette machine said Ziggaretten. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like he makes up a fake country and to give you a vague sense of where in the world the vague country is, the like quick shot of the hotel now is like a very like you know almost northern European man with a hound with like that like barrel on his neck like is sitting in front of it and like that paints a close enough picture of like oh it's in this part of Europe got it like yeah. we're not talking about Spain right now it's it, it's supposed to be a very very small European country that mm-hmm. like. It borders um, Germany and Russia. Like it's supposed to be the most wet. Like it's it's supposed to be the most Eastern European country, like right on the border. That makes sense. Um, and what I find funny is that the town Lutz, yeah, is it's, so. Um, in 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 the interview, this is one of those funny little back and forths. In that mm-hmm. interview, the interviewer asked him or about the town name. And then she said that she Googled it to see if it was an actual town. And all she got was figure skating, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because a lot, it's a, it's a jump. Like that's, you know, and so I I just picture lots from 30 rock. (laughs) (laughs) TGS. So I really liked what the, it began with a Z. Like, that's the only thing I can remember. Like, it began with a Z, and I just, I loved the hotel during the beginning and towards the end, because it definitely, you're like, yeah, this was renovated during, like, a Soviet takeover in the 50s. Like, this is very, yeah, like, the orange and green and the wood paneling, and it just, it all looked like run-down 50s, which was very functional. Yeah. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's just, it. He does a good job at that. He really did. So the country, and I'm probably going to butcher this, is Zubroka. Sounds close Zubroka. enough. Yeah. It's not a real place, so it's okay if you mispronounce it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the main thing is it's not Budapest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, speaking of, when I went to find this film to see if uh-huh. I could watch it without having to rent it, there is a movie called Budapest on Netflix. I believe it's a foreign film because I think it's dubbed. If it's not dubbed, then my video and audio is really off. Um, (laughs) But I was thinking maybe I could get some background on Budapest, maybe thinking that I could get something out of it. And no, it's about two guys that want to start up a travel agency and go to Budapest to meet up with a hooker and a drug dealer to set up this like week getaway for like bachelor parties and like I fast forward it and watch maybe like five minutes at a time. And I no, that's it, definitely not no. what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so this movie is rated TVMA. 
This is me for a movie. <laughs> and has a 5.3 on the IMDb. Ew. But the, uh, the Budapest one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I would definitely, because I mean, I'd even see that. I was like, oh, something named Budapest. Maybe I might get something out of this. Maybe, because I was doing my research thing, too. And I'm like, right. I was like, as soon as I saw the first scene, I knew that it wouldn't. But they had this really cool scene in it where they were talking in an alley about their mm-hmm. plan. And then the one guy just pulls out like a Sharpie marker and just starts writing in the air. And it's like you're watching from the other side of like an invisible whiteboard. And oh, like cool. the letters are just staying up and they're going over like euros and like, you know, times how many people I, I'm done. I just there's thought like, that was cool. There's like real production value in that. I like that. I pictured like this is like some indie college film at the same level no. as like zeros that somebody made in there. No, no. That that was the only cool scene that I saw when I was going through the, the clips. But that's it. That's that, that's all I'm talking about that because I want to get back to the actual good film we're talking about. <laughs> Whereas Grand Budapest Hotel has an 8.1 on the IMDb. Which is well-deserved. I think it's low. I'm going to be honest. I don't want well, to be weird I mean, about it, but I mean, you also have to take into the fact that anybody can vote on that. So, right. I mean, to me, anything above 8.0 to me is a 10 on on <laughs> IMDb. Yeah, so the meta score is an 88. Hmm. Um, it is in the top 200 movies on IMDb. It's number 191. Interesting. Um but it has, like Ryan was saying, it has 682,591 votes. Wow. Like ratings. Like, yeah. So that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, IMDb, anything above an 8.0 to me is a 10. Because, I mean, this is, I mean, at this point, I've always rented this occasionally to watch. I think the next mm-hmm. time I see it on Blu-ray, I'm just going to buy it. I'm almost there with you, though. Like, I feel like I just want to own this movie. It's like Birdman. Like, I just want to own it. Because, I mean, I smile. Like, I legitly smile through 80% of this movie while I'm watching it. Because it just, it makes me happy. Like, because <laughs> it, it, it's fun. It's beautiful to look at. The the characters are amazing. Um, there's really nothing I don't like about it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm having a hard time coming up with anything that I don't like. Devin, do you look like you've got something? He always has something. I'm trying to think if there's something because I always have something. Like, there's always like some dumb thing. Like, oh, it's an anachronism. (sighs) No, it all. I mean, it all. It's so tight. Like, I'm trying to think if there's like a plot thread that they dropped. I mean, do we know? Okay, do we know what happened to Henkel, Edward Norton's character? Did we figure that out, or do do we lose him at the shootout? I think we lose him at the shootout. But I don't think you need him after the shootout. You don't need him after that because no. nothing really involves him after that. Right. I mean, who knows? Maybe he died in the crossfire. I mean, pretty much all of the soldiers in that place were basically uh, fake, not, you know, a a mere universe version of Nazi fascists. So I'm hoping most of them died. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so one thing that one thing I wanted to bring up with this movie is I've, I was recommended this movie recently based on something else I had just seen. Okay. And I don't think we've talked about it much on the podcast. Cause I don't know if you guys have seen it, but 
I recently saw Jojo Rabbit. I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. Okay. Is it similar to this? Style and yes, style wise, yes. Um, the the person who was recommending uh, this to me said this that Jojo Rabbit was Taika Waititi's take on a Wes Anderson film. Okay. Oh, okay. Weird. Okay. I'm gonna and love that. I can watching this now. I can definitely see that, and I really enjoy it. Uh, to the point where I keep getting Edward Norton's character in this, and um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? It's not Taika Waititi, is it? No. <laughs> uh, Sam Rockwell. Oh, I, I'm get, I keep getting the, their two characters confused in my in my brain right now. Um. Because they both kind of play the same part. Interesting. Um, and they kind of look alike. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the first time I saw this uh-huh. was before, you know, Alan and I started doing this thing. So I mm-hmm. still had a problem with actors and names and, like, confusing them sometimes. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw this, I was getting really confused because I kept on crossing... Um, his character, the one that we we're just talking about, the uh, uh, the like police colonel, like Hankel, Hankel, him and the son. Oh, got it. I kept on getting them crossed because, you know, that they, they have the sharp face. They have a sharp mm-hmm. nose. You know, they're thin. So I was getting them confused when I was watching the movie, especially when he shows up at the Grand Budapest and he's wearing the like the like the ZZ armband instead of an yeah. SS. It's ZZ. Um, I thought that that was you know him for a second and then when the other guy comes into to like he comes into the place i'm like oh okay they're separate but i mean i had that problem when i was first watching this because that was before you know like i never talked about actors and who did the what and this so i would visually get them confused sometimes oh i mean i totally get that um so then speaking of actors and characters i've been thinking about this all day and i feel like it's super easy to pick a character that you like in this and I feel like it's easy enough to pick a character that, like, I don't know, they, they, they do a good job of fleshing out M. Gustav. And, like, he would, I feel like he'd be most person, most people's favorite characters. Who's your least favorite character in this movie? And least, least favorite character. Because I don't want to, like. Who? Dimitri. The, the son. The son. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, like, bad things about Adrian Brody. Oh, no. So that's probably part of that. Oh. Uh, also, like he he killed his mom, right? Yeah, I mean it's yeah. That, so that's like, implied, I just yeah. yeah, I didn't really care for him too much. Um. So yeah, I didn't really like him. So that that's an easy question for me. Yeah, like he's the villain of the story, so like it's easy for me not to like him. I'm trying to think because I'm trying to think of who I feel didn't like. I feel like all of the actors did their job more than what they had to because yeah. every single character was blown out of the water on this. Um, so I'm trying to go for characters I wish were, you know, that I got more of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I got more of the butler from the old lady's house. Oh, yeah. Because I really liked him and like his air of like nervousness and, 
you know, uh, you know, and just like the looks he was giving Gustav when when was he was rapping boy with Apple. Um, And I just I wish there was more of him. I mean, I'm not sure if it's needed and it might have been too much and it might have taken away from the flow of the film. But I would have liked his character more like I really liked his character. I feel like you need him to be gone, though, because he's like the crux of why Gustav gets put in jail. Well, like he's yeah. the witness. No, yeah. Like, I think I, I think he serves his purpose not being on screen. I think I feel like the movie would be a lot more con- convoluted if you saw more of him. Which is exactly why I said I understand why he wasn't in it and mm-hmm. that if he wasn't it, it would like mess up the flow of the story because I completely get that and I completely agree. It's just I really liked him. I really liked that character. And it's one of those things where like, you know, maybe if they had like a, you know, like a, a scene after the credits or, you know, maybe if they would have, you know, like deleted scenes or something or, you know, fake deleted scenes of like more stuff of him you know just like stuff like that um but my favorite character in this is the gustav i can't really you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean they flesh his character out so well and he has so many great lines Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know why but i'm really expecting Devin to say his least favorite character is bill murray (laughs) (laughs) no honestly my least favorite character is let me make sure I got this guy's name right. Uh, Jason Schwartzman's character in this. Um, okay. He's like the the like bellhop that's in like the I don't know in like the fifties I guess. Whenever he goes back to the hotel, uh, the one that just like smokes directly into Boy with Apple. Like I don't know. I just I, I I think I've been that kind of disassociated employee enough that I relate to him <laughs> and just don't like it. Well, um, one of the things. No, that's fair. Yeah. No. Totally, completely. But one of my one of my favorite scenes has has to do with him, and and it's and it's the start of this bit where mm-hmm. Zero is talking to Jude Law, mm-hmm. and he says Gustav was the proprietor here um, before you know, like this guy's predecessor. And as soon as he says that, the camera goes back to Jude Law, and you see the guy you're talking about step backwards into the scene and look for like a half second and then he goes to keep on walking because he heard his name you know he heard himself be referenced and then they did that a few other times in the movie where they go to talk about something and they're you know by somebody and they're in the background and they just turn and look real quick because they know they're being talked about yeah like i absolutely love that gag see i didn't even catch that gag because it's i know there's so much like happening all at once that i need to go back and watch that now yeah, so I mean, like, it's right when Zero says um, he was the he was the proprietor here before, you know, and he says something about you know the current guy, and then yeah. the camera goes from Zero to Jude Law, and yeah. then like the second it goes to Jude Law, you see the guy step back, look at the camera, and then you know for for like like a half a second and then he turns his head back straight and keeps on walking I like because that. he's being referenced and he's right there in the background um and then i'd have to say my favorite um, i know you didn't ask this question but i feel no, like no, no. this leads into it um yeah. my favorite scene or favorite conversation 
mm-hmm. between two people has 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 to do between Zero and Jude Law when they're in the Persian baths. Okay. And Zero tells and, and, and I'm talking from the very start of that where they show Jude Law in the bath mm-hmm. and then he's talking to Zero and then the conversation ends with Zero inviting him to dinner. Yeah. So that whole conversation I love because it's two people who are being respectful of each other. And just the way that they're, I mean, it's two people, it's two strangers at that point starting a conversation and doing it very politely. And Zero is very upfront with what he wants, just like Gustav was. So you can see a bit of Gustav in Zero's personality as a character before they even get to him. And yeah. just that very straightforwardness, you know, like, look, if you're not being polite, I would really like to tell you my story, but you have to tell me if you're being polite or if you really want to know. And I do like and, the, the influence yeah. that you can see. Yeah. And then, of course, they're halfway talking and then you hear the guy who is at the reception booth screaming and they show the one lady blasting him with a hose. It's just <laughs> so like, you know, like it's, you know, you hear it and then you see it and they go back to them again. It's just that whole sequence has got to be like, it's, it's, it's my favorite conversation of the movie. Yeah. Alan, do you have a favorite scene or conversation? I think my favorite moment in this movie, well, I, the chase scene is probably my favorite scene. Yeah, just because the 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 I guess everything leading up to that too, like them going into the monastery and like, are you Mr. Gustav? Here, switch cars. <laughs> like, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, uh, but my favorite moment, the moment that made me want to watch this movie from the get go, is in the trailer, and it's the uh, moment where the the police come to arrest Gustav for the murder. He's like. <laughs> You think I, I'm the murderer, don't you? And then he just runs off through the hotel. <laughs> and there's like a moment where they're just standing there like, what? what? And then they and then like it takes uh, it takes a few beats for them to chase after. Right. Him. Because like, they weren't expecting that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's my favorite moment of the movie. I think I, I love that moment. And I think mine has to be every second of uh, Gustav in jail, particularly when he's bringing everybody's sweets. And he's like, I forget what he calls it, but he's like, where's the, it doesn't call it a shank, but he's like. The throat slitter. That's it. The throat slitter. He's like, where's the throat slitter? (laughs) And he takes this like homemade or like homebrew shank and just cutting pastries with it. Like, it's just such this weird dichotomy of this like rough and tumble place. And this guy just being so very sweet and like matronly. And it's so good. One of my favorite lines in this has to do with that. And they close the door behind him and they're all sitting there yeah. after he splits the pastry. And the one guy goes, Gustav, you're a real straight fellow. I like you. And he goes, that's the first time anybody's ever said that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just, the and there was the back and forth between him and the son when he calls him the f word and oh, yeah and then they go back and forth and then he says something about him screwing his mom and he's like well am i one or am i not because you just <laughs> called me one and then and then he makes the comment i go to bed with all my friends <laughs> and it's just like you know that is one of the reasons why I like his character so much because he owns who he is. Yeah. He is who he is and he doesn't care. And if people insult him, he lets them know that he was insulted, but then at the same time, he lets them know that he doesn't care. 
But I mean, he's also the kind of guy that gets broken out of jail, doesn't have a safe house, doesn't have a disguise, but is most mad that the person picking him up doesn't have his cologne. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then he gets mad and then goes off. And yep. then he realizes how much of an idiot he was because he didn't realize what Zero's real backstory was. Yep. And then when he realized what he said was actually horrible, he spends like five minutes apologizing, like actually apologizing. Yeah. And all of that fits this character. And like it, it shouldn't because it all seems like such like just like the same person that goes, you have to beat up somebody in jail in order to get respected is the same person that's passing out pastries in that jail doesn't sound to me like that same character. It sounds like two different characters or one poorly written character. And it's not, it's one very, very good character. Very well written, realistic person. Exactly. And that's, uh, and that's what I like about it. I mean, when he's going through and he's asking the one cell, you know, if they want any like glop or gloop or whatever (laughs) he was calling it. And then he says, you, the big guy with the scar on his face, (laughs) the guy gets down and he hands it to him and he just like, hmm, like, thank you. And then he's like, turns and walks away without saying thank you. But his facial expression was like, you know, a thankfulness. Yeah. And he calls everybody darling, which I love. He's like, who's Gustav? Oh, that'd be me, darling. And he's talking to like a 60 year old man. Right. <laughs> it's great. I absolutely love it. Like, it's just again, like I cannot watch this movie and not smile because it just it makes me happy because <laughs> oh, just the lines, the way it's shot, the fact that the building's pink and it's like almost everything's pastel. Like it just, you know, it's this beautiful beautifully written story in the most horrible of conditions i mean that's what i like so much about it yeah and you're definitely right so okay big question for alan then you've seen your first wes anderson movie you know what other ones are out there will you watch another one after seeing this yes yeah yeah i'm not sure i i'm debating how i want to go i might just start at the beginning and just slowly make my way through everything. Like go back to Bottle Rocket, yeah. and just work my way through. Um, but yeah, I think I will. Okay. And then um, that question, kind of to Ryan, have you seen any other Wes Anderson movies? Will you watch more? Not that I know of. To be perfectly honest, I don't know if I've seen it any of his other stuff. But I'm definitely going to be uh, checking out the Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moon and uh, Moon and Moonlight Kingdom, because those are the only two other movies that I know um, that he's done. I mean, I've never really heard of Bottle Rocket is what it's called. Is that his first one? I'm just it's his first one. Okay, so I mean, I'm uh, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is on Disney Plus. Or it's on one of the streaming services. Uh, I think I'm going to be watching that next just because I wanted to see because I know it's George Clooney, right? Like he it's George Clooney yeah. plays yeah. the Fox. So, I mean, I was I've always been interested in it, but I've never gotten around to see it. But after seeing this again, like watching it for the podcast to dissect it, I like it even more than I did before. And I definitely want to see his other stuff. Fantastic Mr. Fox is on Disney Plus, And that's just weird to me. It's kind of <laughs> weird. Yeah. Because I'm guessing it's it's a Fox film. Yeah. So that's why. Yeah, that, that's a good that's point. That's funny. That's funny. Guys, did you know Disney bought out Fox? It's like still I, weird. <laughs> it's still weird to me, though. What's weird to me, like, it feels weird that the X-Men movies are going to be on Disney Plus this month. Oh, my gosh. Really? Some of them. Like, the first few. Oh. Like, X-Men, X-Men 2. 
No, not even those ones. It's like Days of Futures Past and Apocalypse. Oh, so uh, it's gonna be ones. the it's gonna be the X Men point two. I guess. Yeah. I I um, I call them X Men point two because it's the different cast. Alan, okay. Devin, what do you mean by the good ones? Oh, I was being sarcastic. Are they actually good? Have you seen them? No, I saw first class. So then, why would you even say that? I thought they weren't well liked. It just no, no. That that's <laughs> that's. Oh my god, Devin! Uh, look, put it on a list for the podcast, and please change my mind. I I watched the original X Men movie and loved it. I watched X the X the second one and loved it. And then I watched like the third one and didn't love it. And then when I think I'm done with the X-Men on TV or on movies for a while. And then I like watched first class and went, I guess that was okay. And then just like wrote everything else off. Okay. So you saw the first one, the second one, and you saw the third one and you're like, I'm good for a while. And then 10 years later, X-Men first class comes out and then you watch that and you're like, oh, okay. That was kind of okay. And that it just no, I just yeah. your your line of thinking some some sometimes so, just doesn't you know line up. So today. um, I want to continue this conversation, but I have two things to say. Okay. Uh, the day we're recording this, this is the fourteenth. X Men, the original X Men, came out twenty years ago today. Oh, don't do that to me! Ow. Um, and two, this Ryan, do you want to make him watch Days of Futures Past? I, I think I have a way I think I have a way that you can do this because I do. But at the same time, he mentioned that he'd never seen Jaws. And I said that was going to be my next one. Well, but I'm but but I'm, I'm next. You're next. Oh. So so depending on how well, we here, do this, let, let, I have let, no let, problem let, doing days of you uh, doing well, the second let, let one. Me, let, well, let me bring up what my topic is for next week. Okay. So you Ryan, you had a triple feature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Devin, you had a triple feature. Uh huh. I think it's my turn that I have a triple feature. Oh, yes. And my theme for the triple feature is going to be time travel. So, Ryan, if you want to make him watch Days of Futures Past, which has to deal with time travel, like this whole thing, I've had this planned out for a while now. Okay. uh, Because of Christopher Nolan's Tenet that was supposed to be coming out the week that that episode drops. Right. With everything going on, I don't know when that movie's coming out now, but we're sticking to this because I want to talk about the movie that I wanted, I, I was bringing up for this. So the movie I'm having you guys watch for the time travel triple feature is somewhere in time starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. Okay. I have never even heard of this movie. Honestly, Devin, what time travel movie do you have? Have you both seen the final countdown? No, I have not. Then that's my pick. My pick is the final okay. countdown. You had picked one before, but that's that's a good one. Which one did I pick before? You said Interstellar before. Has anyone here not seen Interstellar? Interstellar? Yeah. It's a movie I stayed away from. Okay, yeah. so here's my thing. is If we're going to do a triple feature, I'm going to give you more of a popcorn-y kind of movie. If we're going to do Interstellar, okay. I want to get into Interstellar because there's a lot for me to talk about there. And I think that okay. Final Countdown is going to be a fun movie for us to talk about. Have you seen it, I Ryan? Mean, we could. Hmm? Have you seen Final Countdown? No. 
Good. Okay. All right. So that'll be our triple feature for next week. Well, yes. okay. So here's so so here's the unless, thing. Unless you've got another one, Ryan. Days of Futures Past. I believe with Devin being the comic book person that he is, mm-hmm. I think would suit itself more to a normal episode. Okay. Okay. So what's your sphere? Sphere. sphere. Weird. I've never heard of either of your movies. Okay. I'm pulling it up right now just to give you guys some some of the cast. Dennis Hoffman, Sharon Stone, Samuel L. Jackson, and uh, Live Live. I do not, uh, whatever. My dyslexia is whatever. L I E V. Levy? Live? Lou? Liev Shriver? Yeah, him. Is it Liev? Liv Shriver. Uh, Sh- Sh- the guy who played Sabretooth in X-Men Origins. Oh. <laughs> Bringing it back to X-Men. Hold on, you're missing the most important person on this cast, Ryan. Who? Queen uh, Latifah? Excuse you, Huey Lewis's helicopter pilot. What? Yeah. Huey Lewis as a helicopter okay. pilot. I'm ready. I'm so pumped well, for this. To hear more about Huey Lewis as a helicopter pilot, <laughs> tune in next week to You Have to Watch This Podcast. Yes. Um, I think that does it for a Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, I think it does. Um, make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to us. We are on all major podcasting apps that we can think of. If you find <laughs> one that we're not on, let us know. We'll go there, too. Um. Make sure to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at you have to watch this podcast. Um, you can email comments to you have to watch this podcast at gmail.com. Um, other than that, for you have to watch this podcast, I'm Alan. I'm Ryan. And I'm Devin. And we'll see you next week. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. Oh, take your hands off my lobby boy!